0: good morning and welcome to the latest around the world in 20 minutes where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on and i thought we'd continue with our world through the great powers eyes today looking at russia after the Prigozhin mutiny the timing for this couldn't be more perfect um i find myself in an odd spot at the moment i've uh, just finished a long and successful trip with our friends the network forum in athens I've dashed home and finished the conclusion to the book. Yes, hurrah, the rough is done. This is always the moment of mortality for any writer, because now if I'm hit by a bus, everything's fine. The editors could still see that the book could get to market, though I might be able to help a bit with the marketing. Um, But basically, my creative part of it is done, and now the craftsmanship, the artisanal part of writing, kicks in. And for the next two months, I'll be going over the semicolons, the footnotes, The verb tenses, all the things my mother who taught grammar would be delighted to have me doing to check that the footnotes are in order. The creative work is done. The craftsmanship is yet to be done, but our breakneck pace continues. The book has to be out for pre-order to you all at Amazon in September, and we are right on track to do that. Um, But uh, the creative bit is done, and so I've kind of reached the top of the mountain. And next week, uh, for great fun, and the irony is immense, I'm off with my friends at Investec, uh, Chris Sanford, and the crew, a 4th of July speech to the defeated British on what the 4th of July met, uh, the basic innovations in American strategic thinking over the last 250 years, and then a wonderful American barbecue, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, uh, the two days I'm always lonely. Uh, when I lived, have lived abroad for all these years, the two days I really miss being home are the two uniquely American holidays, which are my favorite, the 4th of July and Thanksgiving. And it's great this year to have a chance to spend it with my British friends, thinking about our revolution and what it means. Uh, so there's a lot going on. But in all this, I wanted to keep going with our world through the great powers' eyes. We're almost through them. Russia's the last of the great powers. I think we'll probably do one more next week on the world through the emerging powers' eyes, the rising rest of the world, because it's incredibly important that America engage these countries that have proven studiously neutral between the United States and the autocracies. We're almost back to John Kennedy in the late 1950s, seeing that this is the future of the world and they need engagement. Uh, I think they, they deserve a separate section, the regional powers of the world, and then we'll move on to other things. But before we get there, I wanted to do the world through Russia's eyes. One of the great problems with American diplomacy is that because the two utopian schools of thought have dominated it recently, the Wilsonians and the neoconservatives, rather than analysis, you get fairy tales. Good and evil, simplistic tales fit for a seven-year-old. And so if someone doesn't agree with us or pursues their own interests, they are, in, they are inherently evil or Hitler or something that cannot be understood Uh, That's what's being said here. Uh, By the way, Vladimir Putin is indeed a very bad man, and I don't want him dating Matilda anytime soon. But beyond his being a bad man, importantly, can we discover motivations of people who might be bad people, but who certainly don't agree with us? And you can't just say they're evil, walk away and let that be the end of it. You have to study what it means to be different, evil, or a bad man, but what the motivations are of people. And that's what realism is so incredibly good at. Looking at the world from other people's shoes, learning their biographies, learning the history and culture of a country, and then seeing how they might look at the world rather differently than we do. And there's no better challenge for this than for Russia. I'm tired of hearing Putin is Hitler. He's not. He has nowhere near the wherewithal. It's not that he might not want to be a revolutionary power and upend the American-dominated global order. It's that he can't. And so that's a silly argument. Uh, It's not that he's evil. He's certainly a bad man who does horrible things to people like Navalny. Nobody wants to get near a window who's an enemy of Putin or they run into difficulties falling. Uh, He's a KGB officer to the tips of his fingers and people mysteriously fall out of windows, get poisoned, etc., No one's doubting that, but that obscures the strategic rationale behind what Russia's doing, and it isn't unknowable, and it isn't down to evil, and it doesn't mean he's Hitler, and you can't just write everyone off with these simplistic fairy tales. If you're going to make the world better, you don't want to feel good. You have to actually do good, and to do good, you have to look at things as they are and try to make them. So let's look at the world through Russia's eyes. Why did Putin invade Ukraine? With the base understanding of Russian imperial history understands this, and it makes eminent sense. Putin is pursuing a playbook that not only is it tried and true historically and organically part of Russian political and strategic culture, it's worked three times in the last 300 years. It's demonstrably paid off. And so for him to pursue that policy a fourth time doesn't make him mad or Hitler. It makes him a part of Russian culture, and actually he goes back to a very successful model. The model worked against Charles Twelfth in the 18th century, who was trying to eradicate Russia. Napoleon in the 19th century, same deal, when the French Grand Armée made it, in fact, all the way to Moscow. And Hitler in the 20th century, where they knocked on the gates of Moscow before Operation Typhoon ran out of steam in the horrible Russian winter of December 1941. And in each case, the Russian playbook was similar. You have a whole bunch of very unhappy allies to your West, Poland and the other East European countries that you subjugate. As a Western invader determined to destroy you, be it Sweden, France, or Germany, comes at you in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, you trade land for time, They have incredibly long supply chains. I read a great book about Napoleon's invasion, where they make the basic argument that the supply chains and not getting food to the horses was the ruination of the invincible Grand Armée, that again, logistics laid the French low. These incredibly long supply chains as they have to trade land for time, and then winter comes on and finishes off the rival in each case. And this has worked brilliantly well. And what Putin was complaining about before the invasion of Ukraine was this loss of czarist strategic depth, that with Ukraine tilting and pivoting to a pro-Western position following the end of Yanukovych and the advent of the Maidan revolution, that now there were allies of NATO just, you know, 16 minutes missiles away from Moscow. There was no strategic depth. And Putin has striven mightily, even before Ukraine, to more strategic depth. That's why he fought the war with Georgia. Check. The Caucasus are back in line. Uh, Georgia and Chechnya come into play. Check. Belarus is now, again, a satrap of Russia. Check. Check. But strategic depth, that's a good start for the necklace around Russia. But strategic depth doesn't work in what used to be the Soviet near abroad, former Soviet states. He knows he can't do Eastern Europe anymore, but the former Soviet states are what Putin sees as his sphere of influence. None of this works without Ukraine in terms of depth. Just look at a map. It's central and far too big. If it is not pro-Russian in orientation, the whole Czarist theory of trading land for time goes entirely out the window and so that's the reason that russia wanted to invade and dominate ukraine because they wanted to restore the 300 year policy of strategic depth one of the problems with the conferences i go to is people are always talking about something new and often it isn't real they've reinvented something as i said to the bankers at the last meeting stop trying to reinvent banking and merely have enough money for the deposits on hand. Nobody wants you to reinvent or get fancy with anything after the 2008-09 financial crisis. We just want you to go back to being, you know, bankers. And similarly, with not studying history, the people who do poli-sci in my field are constantly trying to reinvent new things rather than looking at the lineage of fine things that, 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 that explain why people behave the way they do. And that's history. Knowing Russian imperial strategic history eminently explains what Putin's doing, which is why my firm, unlike every other one I can think of, called the invasion within two days. And someone was taking issue with us at the conference. We should scream our call record good and bad to the rooftops. Explaining things after the fact isn't analysis. Anyone can do that. It's explaining them in the fog, seeing clarity in the fog of war. That's what explains things. That's what makes sense of things. That's adding value analytically. And our call record, we've got 18 of the last 20, right? is the best in the business. I wish it were 20 out of 20. When we're wrong, I will more than, more, more than frankly admit it. it. It causes me great sorrow, but I will. But some of my colleagues are so bad, they've stopped making calls because they're so bad at it. They're below the monkey score. An ape would get 50% of the calls right, and they're below that. So their way of dealing with this is simply to stop at making predictive calls without that without seeing the general trajectory of what's going on we're adding no value and we're proud to say we do that not always by looking forward but sometimes by looking back and seeing how patterns have evolved in history again history doesn't repeat itself but it certainly rhymes and in russia if you can't see the rhyme you don't know anything about czarist history and vladimir putin certainly does and that's the reason we call the invasion within two days um, that's what Russia is doing. Russia then, of course, gravely miscalculated, as everyone knows that Putin packed dress uniforms with his troops. They had to lug this around the battlefield and they assumed that they would take Kiev in about three weeks. Um, obviously as always in war that there's this, you know, we'll win by Christmas attitude. That's always a sign of Titanic style danger coming and the Russians miscalculated. What did they do wrong? Well, the plan, the initial plan was far too complicated Uh, there were three prongs of the assault. The Russians don't do this well. They're not great strategists. Russia is good at heavy armor and artillery. It's bad at logistics and it's bad at strategy. And this has been true, again, since Tsarist days. The plan was too complicated. They underestimated Ukrainian nationalism. They thought the east of the country would actually fight for them. The problem is they believe their own nonsense Um, I learned this in Iraq. This is often the problem, not conspiracy theories, not Macbeth, but Hamlet, different Shakespeare play where people believe their own nonsense and make terrible mistakes. Um, And then they didn't count on the West to supply Ukraine to the extent that it did. They thought it would be more like 2014 when they started invading through proxies and took Crimea, and it wasn't. For all these reasons, the invasion didn't work. But what's followed since has been a stalemate, and it remains a stalemate. The really striking thing about the Prigozhin mutiny isn't that it weakens Putin. It's that after the mutiny, we're pretty much where we were. Before the mutiny, the Ukrainians still didn't use this period of chaos to break through Russian lines, because simply they can't. Notice the deafening silence from the center-left Ukraine cheerleading mainstream media. Not a peep out of them. That means things aren't going well. As even President Zelensky had the good grace to admit, the invasion or the counterattack, the counteroffensives in the summer are not going as well as he had hoped because the Russians have dug in, a thing that they're good at, and it's now trench warfare. Notice again, you don't see pictures of the war in the way you did in the exciting days, the heroic days, when the Ukrainians repelled the Russians from the gates of Kiev. And you could look at tank warfare. It was mobile. Now you don't see the war. Why? Why? Because to see the war would simply be watching artillery shells being lobbed at each other. It doesn't make for good television. Although their are terrible casualties as the thousands of people who died over Bakhmut, a city like Verdun in World War I, as they wrote in City AM this week, of no strategic significance where the ego of the two leaders got involved. The Russians finally took it for almost no strategic effect at thousands of casualties. But despite these tactical advances, which are very minor, that the Russians made in the spring, they made no strategic breakthrough. Look for the Ukrainians now to do the same. They will regain a little bit of territory, but it will not strategically change the course of the war. They will not break through. Roughly 20% of Ukraine is under a Russian occupation, but they can't bash on to Kiev or take Odessa in the south, but nor can the Ukrainians throw them out of their territory. And so a stalemate has ensued. And when this happens, as happened in World War One. You have to look at the world through Russia's eyes. What is their calculation? The reason that the fighting goes on, and I learned this from my work in Northern Ireland in the 1990s when I was involved in the peace process that Blair and Clinton initiated and did some work on that, as long as both sides have a theory of victory, they'll keep fighting. It's only when both sides or one side realizes they can't win, that negotiations will start. And at present, both Ukrainians and Russians have a theory of victory based on this stalemate. And they start from the same point. They say, look, outside drivers are going to determine what happened as we've ground ourselves into a stalemate. Neither of us can punch through. So as in World War One, outside factors matter. In that case, in World War One, it, it was, will Tsarist Russia remain online? Will it keep fighting? And will the United States at some point enter the war on the side of what was known as the british and french entente will they in russian entente will they enter the war on that side or will they or, or will they stay neutral which will help the central powers well the russians left the war over the two revolutions of 1917 but ultimately the united states decisively entered the war in 1917 to push back the germans decisively in 1918 in other words it was these outside factors that matter the great powers were in a charnel house were dug in in trenches and a stalemate had ensued. And it was these outside forces that determined victory in the war. And at the moment, there are two possible outside forces, Western war fatigue and Russian war fatigue. These are the two factors extraneous to the fighting in Ukraine that will determine the conflict. And from the Russian point of view, it's not unreasonable to make an argument through Russian eyes that goes somewhat like this. You say, look, ukraine will always matter more to us than it does to the united states and to western europe just as if mexico were in chaos the americans geographically would care far more about it than would we so ukraine matters far more to us next door to restore czarist strategic depth than it does to the united states for whom ukraine is a sixth order priority the united states has no treaty commitments to ukraine No tradition of geostrategically working with Ukraine, no vast trade links to Ukraine, nothing. It is a third-order priority, whereas for the Russians, it's a first-order priority. So the Russians think that with this geostrategic fact, their staying power will be greater than that of the Americans for these strategic reasons. And then when you add, in the fact, that the United States has spent more money on Ukraine than all of Western Europe put together, that yet again... There is this, this weird situation where the United States seems to care more about Western, sec- Western European security than do the Western Europeans. And the result of this is that, yet again, the burden-sharing argument never solved since 1949. And remember, the original NATO, the United States was only supposed to have troops in Europe for 10 years until the Europeans got themselves together economically. There would still be a nuclear commitment there would still be a strategic commitment, but American troops would go elsewhere in the world where they were needed. And we're still there. We're still there 70 plus years later. Uh, At what point do we give up and say, look, Charlie Brown's never going to get to kick Lucy's football. Europeans are never going to be as serious about their security as we are. We need to pivot to the Indo-Pacific, whether they do more or not. So there's huge fatigue that the Russians are counting on. The second fact is that, the United States has already poured a whopping $110 billion into Ukraine without auditing where the money's going in one of the most corrupt countries on the planet. And it's not like the United States doesn't need this money. It has a $32 trillion debt. Its school systems are a mess. Its roads are a mess. Its airports and ports are a mess. It has political sclerosis to make America to retain it as a shining city on a hill it's that. Is going to take a huge look at what's wrong domestically with this dad, 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 dad. so why are we fiddling with ukraine while the american rome burns and these other factors which matter far more to the united states seem to be a positive sign from a russian point of view and then lastly politically the republican party echoes this line that one of the two major political parties is showing real signs of war fatigue. And all the reasons less than 50% of Republicans polled are for giving the Ukraine, giving Ukrainians more. And in fact, they're for beginning usually to wind down a plurality, not a majority, a plurality, for for beginning to wind down significant aid to Ukraine over time to tell them it's about time you cut a deal. And we're not going to give you a blank check, an unaudited blank check, given all the gigantic problems we have at home and abroad where the Indo-Pacific is certainly a first-order priority and the most important region of the world where the two superpowers, the United States and China, are vying for dominance. Why are we worried about, yet again, the sixth-order priority, like Iraq, like Afghanistan,
1: throwing hundreds
0: of billions of dollars at a stalemate? And that's roughly the Russian theory of victory, which means if Donald Trump or Governor DeSantis, who are by far the two frontrunners so far for the nomination, both of them would hold to this view, and Ukraine aid would be wound down. So that's the Russian argument for why the war ought to continue, which makes plenty of sense that the Russians' vaunted ability, anybody who reads good 19th century Russian literature, the one thing that shines through is that the Russians are more than willing to suffer, um, and, and they assume that the decadent West will not be willing to suffer. In this case, for areas that are of less importance to it, when they have massive problems internally in the United States, and when the Europeans are not yet again paying their way. So for all these reasons, the Russians say, let's hang on. From the Ukrainian point of view, the view is that, look, the Prigozhin mutiny may have been a one-day thing, more comic opera than Wagner, but ultimately this is a sign of how brittle uh, Russia is, that the command structure is spending its time fighting each other and finding scapegoats for why things aren't working, that will get, over time, a better use of advanced NATO weaponry. They get better training with it all the time, as the HIMARS missiles showed. And so as we get better at using American wherewithal, the Russians will continue not to make gains. And as a result, f- war fatigue will set in, particularly if Putin has to call up more troops. Up to now, Putin has managed to say that the war in Russia is simply a special military operation. This isn't Orwellian terminology. This is politically very important. If Putin says this is a general war that, re- that requires a general draft and a call up of millions of Russian civilians, suddenly that Putin owns this war. Why didn't we win in three weeks? Like you thought, you are the autocrat of Russia and you failed miserably in the first job of any autocrat, which is to be good at fighting wars, you failed miserably and our son and the kid down the street died and it isn't just the regular army and mercenaries like the Wagner troops And even reservists who are called up, it's now average people. He has so far desperately tried to avoid calling up any more reservists, let alone having a general draft. But at some point, he may indeed have to do this. And if Putin has to call these people up, it's then that war fatigue in Russia, when people are killed down the street, as the Americans found with the draft in Vietnam, that that bringing home the war to people down the street, average civilians and even more reservists, will put Putin in a place of genuine political peril, where some of the siloviki, the hard men, and that's the only people who are going to take over, people to Putin's right, who don't criticize that he fought a war, but criticize how he fought the war, which is so badly, one of the siloviki in the military and indel- intelligence or, or interior ministries, the hard ministries, will take him out. And that's the Ukrainian theory of victory, which has been encouraged by the Prigozhin mutiny, uh, just as a sign of the canary in the coal mine. Because of this, both sides are going to continue to fight on because the theories of victory still make sense until the United States twists the arm of the Ukrainians as an outside force and the Chinese twist the arms of the Russians as a vital outside force for this this, this to happen as long as these two theories of victory are upheld. The best time to start looking for peace will be late in the winter when we see that the lines tragically haven't moved at all. Our, our first, speaking of predictions, to those of you who don't think they matter, you're fools. The first prediction we made this year was that the war in Ukraine would continue throughout the year. And everyone at the time said that was crazy. There would be a settlement. Because of our understanding of history and these theories of victory that both sides have, the war, we said, would continue throughout the year. And sadly, that's on course. It's only on when one or both sides realize that stalemate is the name of the game and people bring them to the table or they realize the theory of victory won't work, it's only then that we can begin to look for moves toward a genuine negotiation that will end this war. Probably on armistice lines, it will be ended as happened in Korea. There will not be some formal peace treaty. People will just say, wherever the fighting is in the Donbass, that's where we're stopping. That's probably the Korea outcome of 1950 53 is probably what we're looking at here. I agree with Gideon Ratchman and others that this is, and oddly enough, much of the Washington foreign policy establishment have gotten this one right. Um, I think an armistice line is probably where we're going to head. But we will get to that in time. At the moment, I merely wanted to show you why the Russians invaded, why they failed in their initial invasion, why they're continuing to fight and how they think they can win. I think that's more than enough for one morning. So thank you very much. I've enjoyed this as ever. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. We're overwhelmed with subscriptions at the moment. It's incredibly exciting to be doing the work we can on the book, on the politics in Washington, on changing the Republican party and on growing our community. So please do subscribe. And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking for $70 a year to give you this cutting-edge analysis, which you don't hear from any of our rivals. Why the Russians fought, why they lost, why they're continuing to fight, and why they think they can win. That's more than you hear from our uh, competitors in about four or five months. So please do give us the 70, so I can continue giving this the time amidst all the chaos, because this community is so very important to me, and we will continue doing at least one a week, and possibly more down the road. Uh, 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 It's booming and I love it. Okay, have a great day and speak to you next week when we look at the world through the rising rest size. Take care.